It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Young people pursuing college face many hurdles in today's America. The price of tuition continues to rise, test prep for exams like the SAT can be pricey, and aspiring students who are financially disadvantaged may give up when they see the application fees. David Coleman is president and CEO of the College Board. There is an increasingly panic among the middle class of this country about affording college that is one of the things tearing the society apart. And I think we have a lot of thinking to do about what of those costs we can shift away. In today's show, making college more affordable and accessible for everyone. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion was held in Aspen, Colorado at the Aspen Ideas Festival. The University of Chicago has set its sights on opening access to students with financial hardships and kids from historically excluded backgrounds. The school staff is recruiting in the country's south and southwest. It eliminated loans for students from low-income homes. And in June, it made perhaps the most radical change. It became the first leading educational institution to go test optional. Are these changes making a difference? Today's conversation features College Board President David Coleman and Bob Zimmer, who serves as the University of Chicago's president. Aspen Institute CEO Dan Porterfield leads the conversation. Before joining the Institute, Porterfield was president of Franklin and Marshall College. He starts us off. Um, so, so, Bob, uh, University of Chicago, one of the great institutions in America, um, made a major announcement in recent weeks, which builds upon years of, of work, obviously, which is sometimes lumped together is called the Opportunity Agenda or Opportunity Initiative. Um, and would you say a little bit about what the Opportunity Initiative is and how it grows out of uh, work over a number of years? Beginning about a decade ago, uh, we began what I would say was a systematic, uh, sustained, and multifaceted effort uh, to address what we felt was certainly a major national issue, which is that of uh, access to uh, leading educational institutions in the United States. And by that, I very much mean uh, access to um, schools like the University of Chicago uh, on the part of those who uh, might come from uh, financially disadvantaged backgrounds, uh, historically, uh, excluded backgrounds of various sorts. Uh, and it wasn't, it also, what we realized, it wasn't just only a matter of money. Money is very important, but people not even recognizing that they, that this was even possible for them. Could they even aspire to this? Because they were in an environment where no one was helping them think about this. So this began uh, I mean, there have been many things we've been doing over the years, but it got a tremendous boost from a gift 10 years ago. It was an anonymous $100 million gift from, from an alum of the college um, uh, to eliminate uh, loans for, uh, for those from the uh, lowest uh, family uh, income brackets. And uh, what we saw was that this made a major advance However, what we also saw was that simply doing that didn't solve the problem, that there were many other types of, of barriers. Uh, you had to uh, 
ask, for example, to have the application fee waived if you couldn't uh, afford to pay it. And there are people, um, I, mean, I venture to say, everybody in this room doesn't think about the application fee as, uh, as an obstruction to applying to college, but there are plenty of people for whom it is. And um, you realize this is not a problem sort of at the edge of society. This is a problem in the heart of the United States. And so uh, we began in a systematic way to uh, build programs. And every time we kept evaluating what more can we do to make access greater, to lower barriers one by one. Uh, we, uh, so the, the latest announcement was an Empower initiative was um, really had three components. One is that, uh, as you know, it sort of got the most national attention was uh, that we made the SAT or ACT uh, optional. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. People always have a lot of questions about that. Uh, we also had uh, expanded a, a program we had in Chicago nationally for, uh, for children of police officers and, and firefighters, people who are doing an enormous amount of work on behalf of all of us, uh, who are doing dangerous jobs and are often not, there's no recognition and appreciation. In fact, sometimes it's really quite the opposite. And, and additional programs uh, for veterans. And then there was a whole other uh, access to technology issues because again, there's a lot of students um, you know, your children, your grandchildren who have access to all sorts of ways of communicating, uh, presenting themselves to, uh, to colleges that a lot of kids don't have. And so we made technology available for them to be able to do videos of themselves or submit work easily and so on when their high schools may have no way of doing this and they have no one to help them do this. So all of this is just sort of the latest in this. Look at this from their point of view and see what is it we can do to open this up to them. And, and is it fair to say that the problem that this, the, uh, many efforts that you've led have tried to address is that there are, you think, probably highly qualified, talented students not applying and enrolling in Chicago, and you want more of that talent. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that, that's absolutely that's, yeah. the case. So I mean, when you really look at this, and you really are out there recruiting people, and now we send our admissions office, goes to all sorts of places that we never went before uh, in uh, a lot of uh, southern states, southwestern states, parts of California that we had never uh, been to, and I'm, I'm not talking about uh, uh, Harvard Westlake. I'm talking about uh, places where that are uh, have, have disadvantaged families in them. So we're what we have seen very graphically is that there's talent in all sorts of places, and we want uh, to reach that talent, and we want them to be able to aspire to coming to the University of Chicago. Thank you. Um, now, David, you've also made a number of changes during your five years or so right. as, yeah. as president and CEO of the College Board, which, if you all don't know, is an extraordinary organization. Among many things, it develops curricula for teachers. It runs the AP, 
uh, you know, a critical national resource for giving students a chance to take college-level courses. And of course, it runs uh, the SAT. It also partners with colleges to allow colleges to send information to students. Um, and um, so David, you, in five years, you developed an opportunity agenda at the College Board. You say a little bit about that and what the need for it was and some of the things you've done. Yeah, and just for fun, there are some fun things that Bob and I have in common I thought I'd share, just uh, President Simmer, that is. Um, we both went to Stuyvesant <laughs> High School in New York. Um, we at the College Board are huge admirers of President Zimmer's stand on free speech. And so we are actually, we haven't formally. Yeah, to be blunt, it is essential for the vitality of higher education in this country that it both is and is perceived to be a place where free conversation and vital conversation happens. And you've done a lot on that. And so we are going to come behind you. Uh, this is not yet formally announced. We'll announce it later. But uh, since about three to five million students take advanced placement each year, but there's that lull after the test, right? Once it's given, it's movie time in school. Um, well, we're going to do something better. We're developing a two-week free course with Jeff Rosen from the Constitution Center that will immerse students in the five freedoms enshrined in the First Amendment of the United States. In other words, we believe that to be ready to go to college before you get there, students need to be immersed in understanding these mingled rights, the right to free speech, free press, the freedom of religion, all that must simultaneously exist for our side to thrive. So we hope that'll make your job a little bit easier. Um, and you don't, you don't know this, David, but in a panel yesterday, Bob made exactly that point. It would be great to have some help yeah. in getting students ready. Here I am. Uh, Good. <laughs> uh, and you know, it's interesting because our partnership with the National Constitution Center began by developing with them and promoting uh, interactive constitution, which is freely available to all. And that conversation largely took shape in Laura Lorder's home uh, around the corner from here. Uh, which is a great example for you, Dan, of how ideas at Aspen can become action in the world. So thank you, Laura. And um, so secondly, another deeper correspondence between our two lives is that my mother and brother went to the University of Chicago undergraduate. Um, so uh, when I went to Yale, if any of you know these worlds, that was kind of an intellectual step down. Um, and uh, my mother went during the great era of Hutchins when the Chicago Corps was developed. And it not only had a huge impact on American higher education, but as you know, Hutchins partnered with this guy, Mortimer and Adler, to build the movement around the great books in this country. And they actually changed what was on the shelf of American households. All those bound books of the great books was really their idea, that there were a few things that everyone should know. And so just to say it, if we argue a bit about some of the policy stuff, it's out of love. Um, and uh, no, a deeply felt one about your institution and your legacy. And so in terms of the College Board, to be frank about our legacy, I took over the College Board five years ago, and it was founded on a simple and beautiful idea, which is colleges were recruiting from a very small part of America, and they had the self-consciousness to realize that was not okay. And they bound together to make a test to see far more talent than they had seen before. But by the time I inherited it five years ago, virtually no one in America, to be frank, saw the College Board as an avatar's disrupting privilege over merit. They saw us instead of certifying inequalities that already exist in our society. And we had to own that. We had to take that on. And I'll tell you a bit about what we've done. The first thing we had to do is redesign the test itself. The intelligence test foundation of the SAT, the idea that it measured something hard to understand and hard to change, had to be gotten rid of completely. And the revision of the exam in 2014 has eliminated that history. So there are no longer things like SAT words, words you have never heard of and shall not, not likely hear again. 
or tricky math problems you may never have seen before that test things different. What if instead everything on the new SAT is exactly what you are most likely to have seen in high school and most importantly, most useful for your first year of college? To be a little more specific, every student takes the new SAT, reads a science article on the exam to make sure they're comfortable in a science class, an economics or social science article, literature, and one of the founding documents of this country or the great conversation of liberty it inspires globally. Because being able to do that range of things is participating in college, not just getting in. The math section covers the three areas of math that are most widely used in the first year of college, which is not the calculus, which is more for some, but data analysis and problem solving, the kind of math that enables you to participate in the full range of courses. But revising the test wasn't enough, and you all know why. Because it was evidently corrupting that there was a high-priced, costly test preparation industry for some. And for far too long, the college board said, it's not our fault. We made a great test. Look what happened. But it may not be our fault, but it most certainly is our problem. Because that perception of inequality around the exam destroyed the SAT as a symbol of merit rather than privilege. So we announced four years ago that we would partner with Khan Academy to provide the best of free test preparation for the world. Now, I'm something of a skeptic of technology, but today, how many people have signed up to do Khan Academy, young people? Six million, okay? On average, students who practice 20 hours in Khan Academy are advancing towards the SAT from the PSAT 120 points on a 1600 scale. There are 16,000 students who have advanced 200 points or more. But as all of you know, sadly, free does not mean equal. We feared that the more advantaged in our society would take better advantage of this tool than others. <coughs> but I can tell you we now have the research because we partnered with public school systems around the country and with nonprofits and churches and others. We now have equal use of Khan Academy across income distribution and we have greater growth in performance at the lower end of performance than the top end of performance. So that's a start. But as President Zimmer so ably said, what happened to the high-achieving, low-income kids in the bottom quartile of income, but the top 10% of performance, is half of them do not apply to a single selective college in this country, meaning our promise was broken. So we looked at it, and the first thing they faced were those admissions fees. And partnering with the University of Chicago and all the colleges around the country, we now send every student who takes the new SAT eight fee waivers to apply to college for free, a personal invitation to say, go. And my favorite day at work is when we send out the fee waivers to kids to apply to college. One kid posted them on Instagram and said, the college board sent me fee waivers because I am awesome. <laughs> uh, he did not say because he was poor. And our work extends down to the PSAT. How many of you took the PSAT? Keep your hand up if you did anything productive with it. <laughs> Why do you think people hate testing? So it used to be that the only thing the PSAT could do for you is maybe qualify you for a National Merit Scholarship, which is awesome and very rare. So instead what we've done is every student who takes the PSAT, 30 seconds after, can link their account to get personalized practice on Khan Academy. But also we now for free give this information to all the major scholarship organizations in America, allying more than $180 million of new scholarships to it. Why does that matter? If you take the Jack Kent Cooke Foundation, who gives scholarships to low-income, high-achieving children, they have seven people who work for them going to high schools, trying to tell them about the scholarship. That's a limited sales force. The people who get scholarships in this country are not those of most merit, but who know about them. And by the foundation being able to find them through the PSAT data, they last, eight, last year were able to give 30% more scholarships to rural kids who would have been isolated otherwise, who would not have been seen. 
because that is our task. I could say more. I'll just end with another very cool thing that the University of Chicago has done as part of its opportunity initiative that we share. The other unfair thing in this country is advice. Without good advice, I can promise you, adolescents of any wealth scale, including some of your children, make terrible decisions. Um, and, but there's this great program called the College Advising Corps where they take first-generation students from college and link them with first-generation kids, led by our friend Nicole Hurd. And we found them by far the best in class. So we've raised money for them. We give them our data so they can find kids earlier in their trajectory using the PSAT, using the SAT to inspire them to apply more broadly. And the University of Chicago recently announced that they will house a chapter of the College Advising Corps. So yet one more example of where we're working together. The College Advising Corps, run by Nicole Hurd. So uh, uh, both cases, you know, venerable institutions, I would say adapting your mission, reforming a little bit, not changing your mission, not departing, but developing it for these times. Uh, in both cases, uh, critics come out and say, well, what's Chicago really doing? Or, well, the College Board, you know, what's this really about? So would you just for a moment frame what you think is the most important critique of your, your uh, respective agendas uh, and just how you would address that critique? So let me address yeah. David uh, Leonhardt's uh, yeah. uh, comment in the New York Times uh, the other day, uh, because it's, it's an interesting example. So here you have somebody who uh, uh, purports to be uh, an expert on, uh, on dealing with education issues for, uh, for the New York Times. And uh, it's, uh, if anybody who looks at the kinds of things that we've been talking about, and I think you can hear just from the discourse that both of us have had, this is a complicated issue. Uh, there are all sorts of issues that need to be addressed and um, all sorts of um, ways of addressing them, some of which inevitably need to be experimental because we're all trying things, seeing what works, throwing overboard what doesn't work, and moving on. This is not a problem where you sort of say, uh, well, here's one number. I'm going to make that number higher, and therefore, uh, I've solved this problem. Now, if you look at that article, uh, that's sort of exactly the way uh, he framed it, which is the federal government, uh, the source of great wisdom on this topic, uh, has, has one number that they're particularly fond of measuring, which is understandable because they're giving out money for it. Um, so the federal government uh, has this number. And um, Leonard's article was about measuring this, uh, this one number. And, and uh, that's the Pell Grant uh, percentage among the, those in, your student, yeah. in our student bodies. Yeah. yeah. And it's not, it's not a meaningless number. But to look at that as your, uh, the set of data that you're looking at is really uh, quite an absurdity. So I, I don't want to sort of trot out an endless uh, collection of, uh, of data here about um, why we think that's just a total misrepresentation of, of both the state of the University of Chicago with uh, respect to diversity, an argument that's not that difficult to make, uh, but uh, rather uh, sort of point out that because of that article, you, you see uh, how uh, misleading it can be when you start looking at one number 
around a complex problem. And that's the case for everything. I mean, any of you who have dealt with a complex problem uh, and say, ah, here's the one number that describes it, I mean, it's just sort of a bad joke. And so that's my comment on, uh, and, on that article. And the, the, in a sense, the, the, the Leonhardt piece said, and I, I don't, they're not taking the view, but it said, well, I don't know if I can, David's voice, I can trust the University of Chicago to make more gains in terms of opening up access. And uh, I suspect your answer is, the proof's in the pudding, watch what we do. Uh, no, my answer is I don't care if David Leonard yeah. trusts us or not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
taking advanced computer science in America because they came to that invitation. So, so, so David, I think the criticisms we have to be careful for yeah. are those that make us take responsibility. Okay, so I'm going to follow up with David, though. So, uh, so I, I, that's a fantastic example of the College Board agenda leading to yeah. um, you know, new opportunity. Some say, though, that there's testing mania yeah. all across the country, that, uh, that the, the prevalence of tests, the, the growth of tests, the public systems, private systems' reliance on tests, AP and SAT and ACT, essentially is sucking the joy out of learning, yeah. A, and B, that the tests themselves reflect either the interests of the wealthy or the interests of the test makers. Yeah. Uh, just what about that? Yeah. that Let me say a little yeah. about that. Like I, stepping back a bit, Dan, I think we have to stop the madness in college admissions. I think the response to college admissions right now is so unhealthy for most young people, we have got to figure it out. So I'll offer a few thoughts about how tests might play into that, but it's a much broader thing, as, as we all know here. In terms of testing, um, the idea that a young person can do advanced work, college-level work in high school is a beautiful idea. And the modal number, the most common number, as the mathematician next to me understands well better than anyone, is one. So just to be clear, while we worry about kids taking too much AP, most kids take one course and are done. But those kids who do 10 or 15 courses to get into college, I fear for them. So I am thinking about, and I'm not making a public announcement yet, but I wonder if the College Board should take the following position. If you offer extra points on your grade point average for more than five advanced placement courses in high school, we don't want more points for it. We don't want more than five AP courses to have a role in admissions. I am not saying that some enterprising young people, because they're bored in high school, they want to save money, might take more than five AP courses, but not to get into college. Enough already. It's enough. And if you want to hear another example of stopping the madness, while the common application to get into college has 10 places for your extracurriculars outside of school, and the coalition app has eight, why shouldn't there be three? If you want to do more things in your adolescent life, do them, God bless you, but not to get into college. So I think we need a new restraint, and I'm very willing for the College Board to help lead in that. Um, let's, oh, thank you. <laughs> let's, let me see if I can tease out, and then we'll open up to questions, whether, or to the, whether there's a disagreement between you or agreement around the role of the SAT and the ACT in the college application process. <laughs> University of Chicago made big news, as you said, in deciding that it would go test optional. I don't think you were probably trying to make a policy statement for the country, but you were developing your own organic strategy for your goals. But nevertheless, a lot of people have taken notice, and there's a lot of anticipation for the possibility that the other highly competitive schools to get into may take a similar step. So could I, could I ask you, Bob, your thought just on that piece, yeah. and then David maybe ask you to respond. Yeah, so when, when you look at um, higher education in general, you've got an enormous diversity of institutions. Uh, they have different uh, goals, they have different student populations, they have different degrees of wealth, they have different cultures, uh, they have different types of, of support. So you're looking at a very different set of institutions. Uh, if you ask me what they all need to be thinking about, is they all need to be thinking about the issue we started with, which is the access issue that you've heard both of us talk with a great, uh, a great deal of urgency about. Now, how are you going to do that? Well, uh, how you're going to do it depends on the total context of, 
of the situation that you're working in. Our particular situation is that we have a very uh, significant admissions team that does an enormous amount of work, uh, that travels all over the country, that talks to everybody on the phone all the time, that meets a lot of students, that has a huge amount of experience. And we have a whole set of things that are, a, a small number of things, honestly, that are required part of a submission, and a whole bunch of things that are an optional part of a submission, and then just a whole bunch of stuff we know, um, basically, about schools. And we look at this uh, as a whole. And it was the judgment we made was that for us, in our particular situation, uh, the trade-off of message about, um, about what we were saying in this is a place you can aspire to as weighed against the amount of additional information that this gave us as a required issue um, is what led to our decision. You take other institutions, there, and this was not a statement that there's no information of value in the test, just to be totally straightforward about that. Uh, it was, how does this fit into the whole collection of information that a very energetic, ambitious, uh, capable, well-informed team um, uh, has? So, so, so and, uh, you think that your team can make the same high-quality decisions while making the test optional. And you may get more applicants feeling that University of Chicago wants to see them yeah. by, make, by going test optional. Yeah, that's, yeah. That, that is our conjecture, that we yeah. can, in fact, make uh, the same high-quality decisions uh, simply because of the nature of the portfolio of information right. we have, and that it will be opening, in our case, to uh, in, encouraging more students to aspire two quick to what we're doing. Two yeah. quick follow-ups, just a just sort of lightning round. Short, short <laughs> yeah. answer, just yeah. informationally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's hard. Uh, <laughs> then we'll go to David. But number one, uh, so far, alumni and faculty response? Uh, very positive. Okay. But Se nothing's uniform in university. Of course, university. of course. <laughs> of course. Uh, second uh, second follow-up, um, the, the U.S. News and World Report does rankings, and I think there's a little bit of a of a penalty for schools that go test optional, or there can be. That sounds like that wasn't something you even. We didn't think about yeah. it. Yeah, so good job. Um, <laughs> uh, so David, um, your, your response to the University of Chicago making this decision. I, I just so appreciate the respectful tones in which Bob describes the policy, you know, and he talks about what each institution needs, and as a membership institution, I have enormous respect for the choices my members make, and we'll try to help you do this well. I also will say, I independently know, he has a superb set of professionals led by Jim Nondorf in admissions, but I really do disagree with the policy and the message it sends, so I'd like to talk about why, what I yeah. fear of it. It's more, it's less a disagreement than anxieties, so maybe I'll list them for you and we can talk about them further. When we talked to Chicago about the decision, we advocated for a range of objective measures, but keeping something objective. So if it's not the SAT or ACT, maybe an IB program or an AP program or something. Because I think the position that there's no necessary objective part of admissions is quite a radical one for an elite institution to take in America, particularly for Chicago, actually. So, so what you would go to quickly is it's OK, there are grades. 
So let me show you what we know about grading in America. While SAT scores have stayed roughly flat or slightly declined, they're now improving, but before that began, grades in America, good news, are improving. And, but the interesting thing is they're improving a bit in public school, almost unnoticeably, and three times as fast in wealthy schools and wealthy suburban schools. So it's either that the wealthy have found a form of intelligence not measured by our exam, or there are other pressures operating. And I think both tests and grades are deeply flawed, if you want my candid view. Relying only on the SAT would, I think, be an abomination. And I'm only for holistic admissions. But I worry that we underestimate here the corruptions of relying on grades alone. Right now, if you're a math teacher, the, al the alternatives in the Chicago admissions program have nothing else where you need to show your math prowess but your grades in math. And a lot of people don't like math. And so imagine the pressure now on a math teacher at an elite school where the best school in the country, or one of them, you, all you need is their grade. And if they give you that grade, you go forward, and if they do not, they don't. Because right now there's a check and balance. They know, look, if the kid's going to have to do it on the SAT or an AP, it doesn't matter what grade I give, they're going to have to show it independently. That changes with this program, and we have to take responsibility for it. And my sense is, while I worry about that, I worry more about the signaling to the poor. So let's talk about this for real. I know me taking this position. If I was in your shoes, you'd be like, we expect he would be for acquiring the test because he makes money by selling the test. Like, shall we say that out loud? But it's interesting. Do you think wealthy or middle-class parents, their kids, will not try and take the test? No, of course they'll take the test. And if they get a low score, they might not submit it. That's the game. Because when they don't submit their scores, do you think the assumption is that they were very high and they were so modest as not to submit them? No, they will try to avoid that moment because they understand that game. But the poor or working class, when you announce tests are optional, they might take you up on it. They might say, gosh, I don't need to take a test. I don't need to take IB. I don't need to take AP. Because the best schools, it's optional. And my life is very busy. I don't have much time for what's optional. And I want to tell you, do you know what percentage of kids in this country have straight A's in high school? 47%. So of those who take the SAT, of those who take the SAT, they self-report straight A's. So if you are that kid, you think you're awesome. You don't think you need to do something else to distinguish yourself. And so I really do worry that without an objective flag to wave, that there are many students who will be left behind and the opposite message will be given. <coughs> and the other thing we really have to deliberate about is if we're going to talk about the inequalities of tests, which as you can tell I'm a student of and trying to fix, what about the other things you can submit, whether it's research in a certified lab or winning a competition, or how open are these to the people we want to attract? In other words, when, so I talked to the, I called the head of CPS, the superintendent of the Chicago Public Schools, and I said, Janice, what do you think? Is this a great day for the Chicago Public Schools? Test is optional. Is this a new opportunity? And she said, no, our kids don't do these other things. And so I think that's the question we face here, which is, I love the access agenda. I will do anything I can to support it. I think President Zimmer is entirely authentic in his profound desire. I hope that we can get to the return to some evidence in admissions that's separate from subjective testimony. Yeah, can I, I thank you to respond? Yeah, sure. Which, and, you know, I, I, I appreciate the, uh, uh, the comments, and it's, it's um, it, as usual, it's the case that in any complex situation, not all arguments point in the same direction, and that, that's fine, and uh, that one, one is always a, something that we tell 
all our students, and I say that to them at opening convocation, that not all arguments point in the same direction about, um, uh, about anything of any degree of complexity. Um, I, I will say that the, um, you know, we have, we reject 8,000 students who score 1,500 or more on the SAT. Um, so, you know, we have a very strong application pool. The competition is very severe. And, um, and no information is perfect. Grades are not perfect, tests are not perfect, and so on. So the, the only way uh, we can operate is actually by making a kind of uh, holistic judgment based on the whole totality of, in, of information that, that we have. Uh, we don't base this by some formula on your grades and your test scores and you check this box uh, or that box. Now, if you're a massive state public school and you get many more applicants than you can possibly deal with and you have a whole political issue of uh, of, of having to demonstrate a kind of objectivity, then um, you know, then maybe you do have a formula. But that's again, uh, we do not. But um, we do have a um, what I, I would say, even in an environment in which there's a lot of murkiness of uh, of information, as there always is. Anybody who thinks any information is perfect is again. Uh, not actually try to act on information and see what happens uh, because of it. Um, we believe that we have a good methodology because we have a good team that talks to a lot of people, understands what's happening in individual schools one by one. I mean, every single high school that we admit a student from, we know what's going on in that school. We know what's going on in the grades. These are not abstracted entities as if they're uh, a student with data and no school so, background. So, so, so we've got two crisp definitions of, sort of approach, as well as lots of overlapping consensus. I'm going to invite questions. Thanks. My question is, would it be valuable for college counselors in high schools to be emphasizing statistics instead of calculus for college oh, admissions? Okay, well, I'm asking for a lightning round answers, too, so we can get some more questions. Um, yes, to actually do statistics well and properly, you need to know a little bit of calculus, but un understanding them together, uh, definitely. Data analysis more than, more than statistics. What everyone really needs to do is to be a data analyst. So central tendency and the particulars of statistics, I would go a little bit lower. Everyone must be an analyst. Right here. What would you do on your campus, or what would you advise a campus to do to make the actual experience once a student is on campus to be more equitable and a true meritocracy? Okay, big question. We could the whole panel, but yeah. Well, I mean, this is a huge, uh, a, a huge topic, and uh, the first and key issue is to understand that nobody gets a buy without making an argument that has merit, and that every argument, every statement needs to uh, needs to be challenged. That's an enormous leveling. And if you go to the economics seminar at the University of Chicago, the graduate students challenge Nobel Prize winners, and they expect to be challenged. 
And that's the ethos of that environment needs to be the ethos of the University of Chicago. Yep. That said, just one other sentence. I know that wasn't the direction you were talking about, but I think it's, a very, it's very important uh, to keep that in mind because it is a, a key leveler, uh, but one needs to have in place a whole set of things. You can follow up with, afterwards, with too. Life. So right there in the, that, yeah, yeah, that one. Is there, uh, do you have concern, President Zimmer, about uh, middle class access and uh, the fact that what's being created, generally speaking, is a barbell with respect to the demographics in the large institutions, and what are you doing about it? Yeah, um, we, um, we are not, I'll be honest, experiencing that. It goes a little bit to using the Pell data as, uh, as the uh, be-all and end-all of the, the question of, of diversity, because if you're a family making uh, $100,000 a year, which is, you know, as I said, well above the uh, median income, uh, you're not going to fall into that category, and yet you're not going to be able to send your kid to school. I mean, it's the cost of the whole year. Your entire income goes to that. You can't, you can't possibly do it. So our programs take, try to take that into account, and we see that that's the case. David, do you want to address that? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think the barbell problem is immense. I think that the, uh, I'm not trying to say the University of Chicago is not doing great work on that problem, yeah, I but I think generally speaking, sir, and that's why for it, one of the most interesting things during the partnership with Khan Academy is the relief to the middle class. I mean, I can't tell you how many of my friends are enraged about what they were paying unnecessarily to this kind of stuff. And we're thinking a lot about it in our programs about a kind of descending scale, because honestly, uh, as you all know, there's an increasingly panic among the middle class of this country about affording college that is one of the things tearing the society apart. And I think we have a lot of thinking to do about what of those costs we can shift away. Next yeah, if, I could, if I could just add one, one more sentence. Part of this initiative that, that we just launched that I didn't mention is a focus on, uh, on rural kids. And again, this is a whole group that has been left out of a lot of the concerns that, that of various sorts of programs. I love the momentum we have. Keep the questions coming as questions right here in the front. So the classes that, um, that you're setting up to help students who, um, to prepare them who otherwise, um, what are you doing about the fact that a lot of those kids are kids who don't have computers in their home? Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> what we found was a lot of kids don't have computers in their home and almost all of them have a phone. In their, not computers in their home, but all of them a phone. So in the Khan Academy partnership, what we did was, is it began as something you could do over your laptop, which, which excluded certain people. So now, uh, if you get a pencil, and you can print out the test for free, a free sample test, and you fill it in and take pictures of it, in 30 seconds, you have a personal account on Khan Academy. You scan it with your phone, and you can then practice there. So turning everything mobile is the beginning of the answer to your question. We're all thinking, if only. Uh, uh, one behind. And the one in the green, yes, you've been patient, yes. It seems like a lot, for the College Board, it seems like a lot of your recent initiatives have come from analyzing the treasure trove of yeah. big data that you have. Do you think that there will be, this will be a productive source of future ideas for you? I think as long as we utterly obey the sanctity of privacy. So the, 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 
the really important thing is that every piece of data we even analyze is explicitly opted in by students and families. And I think we need to be more than careful with that. But, but yes, sir, I think that, that there is so much unseen. So when the College Advising Corps, which is not a $30,000 a year counselor, a $20,000 price counselor, is advising first generation kids, you know what's cool? They can see data patterns. They have the real data from us as how these trajectory works. They are more informed than the high price counselor. So I think the College Board's mission is to bring broadly, use data and other tools so that the real intelligence is broadly distributed rather than this kind of craft knowledge that is kept for some. Yep. In the front. This is yeah. for College Board. Can you talk about um, the idea of the states? Some states now are looking into using the SIT as their statewide assessment. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Uh, the question was about some states using the, state for state, the SAT for statewide assessment. So my big day about Illinois was not actually the Chicago announcement as immensely important as it was seen to be. Uh, what really will change our mission is that the state of Illinois later that week announced not that we were chosen over ACT, which is fun if you care about that, for the statewide exam, but they also adopted for all young people a ninth grade and 10th grade PSAT, meaning for the first time, kids at the beginning of high school can be conscious of their trajectory and work on it with enough time. Last minute test prep does not change your trajectory, but good course taking based on data, early contact from colleges and scholarship providers can change your future. So that's the work to be done. Well, you're saying that every public school ninth and 10th grader is now getting a PSAT. For free. Okay. And it's question. done in the school. Right over here. Uh, this is a question. With first generation and low income students, what are you doing to ensure that they graduate at the highest level possible? Yeah, well, it's not actually an ongoing problem for us because the students we admit are extremely capable and the graduation rates for everybody are, are in fact, very high. Um, once you're, I mean, for us, what we found is once the quality of the students <coughs> goes up and we believe that that level of student is available in, in all the various categories, they can do the work and they can graduate. We are a difficult place. I mean, this is a, uh, this is a hard place to graduate from and you don't want to come if you can't do it. But the, the talent's everywhere and once people are in, they don't have it. Can I, can I give you one sentence on this? <clears throat> From our data and what we saw at Dan Porterfield's institution, F&M, and at Amherst College and in community, so take the best of community college transfers. Take the best of first generation kids and low income kids in America. They are better than the average kids at these schools. Make no mistake, supporting them is good, but what they really need is more seats. Let more of them in and they'll tear the pants off it. Give them seats. Okay, that sounds like a quotable quote. Uh, thank you all. Thank you, Bob. Thank, thank you. you. Robert Zimmer has led the University of Chicago as its president since 2006. He's a freedom of speech advocate who speaks and writes about free expression on college campuses. David Coleman is president and CEO of the College Board, where he's helped launch a simpler SAT and partnered with Khan Academy to provide free SAT practice. Dan Porterfield is president of the Aspen Institute. Previously, he led Franklin and Marshall College. Their conversation was held June 30th at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. 
The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Keelene Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.